To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Christine Horton. After practicing nutritional medicine for three decades and holding a PhD in nutrigenomics, Christine has built her extensive clinical experience to research, develop and teach other clinicians clinically relevant strategies associated with nutrigenomically active phytochemicals. Sulforaphane, derived from broccoli sprouts, was the focus of her PhD thesis, and she owns a nutraceutical company supplying nutrigenomic bioactives. Her recent research has culminated in the development of the GEM protocol, gut, ecology, and metabolic modulation, an approach that mimics the processes used by nature to re-establish homeostasis within the gut and with consequent enhancement of cardiometabolic health. In addition to her scientific and lay publications, Christine is the co-author of two online courses in nutrigenomics for practicing clinicians and is currently engaged in the development of further online training for clinicians, mastering the GEM protocol. Welcome to FX Medicine. Christine, how are you? Thank you, Andrew. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, today we're going to be discussing the antioxidant myth or where we've gone wrong. So... You know, this was a theory developed in, what, the 1950s? Mm, probably um, about then. Mm. But, but trials with particularly single antioxidants have been, you know, um, less than lacklustre, let's say, and in some instances has increased disease. So what's happened with the antioxidant theory, I guess, first off? Yes, well, when you when you look back now with the, the benefit of hindsight, you can see that our theory was just a little bit too simplistic. We had this idea that all free radicals were bad and all antioxidants were good. And, and as it turns out, it doesn't really work like that in the cell. And that's to a large extent because we didn't really appreciate the value of the cell's own antioxidant enzyme compounds that it generates and a number of other non uh, enzyme compounds like glutathione within the cell. And it turns out they're quenching literally millions of free radical species per minute and even per second. Yeah. Whereas when you have a single food molecule, let's say like a score bag, you have minimal quenching of radical species with that one molecule. So it changed, it had to change the way we saw things. And that changed in 1992 when the transcription factor NRF2 was discovered. And right. it's a bit like a switch within the cell that switches on a whole host of really potent protective compounds. Let's investigate this, the NRF2 ARE. Antioxidant response element is what it was originally designated. Yeah. yeah. And where does that fit into the big daddy of inflammation, NF-kappa-B? Well, the, the, so NRF2 is one switch transcription factor within the cell and NF-kappa-B is a different switch. So NRF2 switches on hundreds, literally, of protective genes and NF-kappa-B switches off a whole host of inflammatory cytokines. Now, that's not to say that NF-kappa-B is the bad guy because we do need those pro-inflammatory cytokines for a whole lot of processes yeah. like infection control. Right, yeah. Um, so the cell is very clever because it's got these intricate signalling mechanisms that knows when to put the foot on the accelerator and when to put it on the brake. And it's almost like um, a racing car driver is 
got two feet working, partly on the accelerator, partly on the brake, and he's switching from one to the other. That's the magic of Mother Nature in controlling what goes on within cell modulation. Do you think, therefore, we need to just get rid of the term antioxidant because it's flawed in even its, even its premise, really? Look, it is. Uh, I don't know how you're ever going to do that. Because I think well, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Now. Yeah. I practically never use it except in one context, and that's when you have a direct radical quenching effect of polyphenols in the gut. So if you have the, um, the proverbial red wine with your blackened barbecued steak, you're going to get a direct scavenging effect of those polyphenol molecules in the red wine on these highly carcinogenic re- reactive species that are in your blackened steak, and you will get a direct quenching effect. That's the only context in which I talk about antioxidants per se. And that's really... I mean, you know, we're talking about the gut lumen content, so it's almost like an ex vivo mm. situation. And this is where the the antioxidants shone in an in vitro environment where they could demonstrate in a very controlled cell culture that you had quenching effects of these radic- of these antioxidant compounds. Exactly, and that's where the original theories came from. Yeah. So it was Dr. Denham Harmon back in the mid-50s, who was a petrochemical chemist, who'd done some of this lab work, work, and he discovered that antioxidant-type molecules could quench free radicals on the lab bench. Uh, Then we translated it some years later, we, uh, human scientists, into ORAC values. And so, you know, blueberries and acai berries and goji berries and all of these compounds which have a high ORAC value have that because they have the ability to quench or scavenge a number of reactive oxygen species at the same time. But it turns out it's got absolutely no relevance to what's going on within the cell. And and I remember the ORAC value was touted as the the be-all and end-all um, measure of the value of a, of a food mainly, you know. And I've got to say it was mainly involved with multi-level marketing companies, but and not I, only. I was just going to say exactly that. It was brilliant for, from a marketing standpoint but useless from a a human intervention point of view, so much so that in uh, 2010, the United States Department of Agriculture, which had the table on its website, not only pulled the table off, but I think to this day still has a statement there to say why it pulled it off. And I was most adamant that this is completely useful in terms of clinical interpretation. Apart from the quote-unquote antioxidant vernacular being incorrect, we still have these compounds which appear to have benefit. You know, coenzyme Q10 with the Q-Symbio study um, uh, with ejection fraction. There's various trials showing benefit with glutathione, lipoic acid in metabolic disease. But well, You've just named three molecules that the cell makes for itself. What interests me is in the past, we think about the term antioxidant, but, you know, coenzyme Q10, the first compound on the market was the oxidized form of CoQ10, not the redox, uh-huh. not the reduced uh-huh. form. So again, the antioxidant tag that we put onto it is really incorrect. Well, yes and no, because if you look at NRF2, one of its target genes is a gene called quinone reductase. Mm. Quinone reductase is a very potent phase two detoxification enzyme, but the other thing that quinone reductase does is it reduces quinones like coenzyme Q10, ubiquinone, and puts it back into the ubiquinol form. So regardless of whether you're taking oxidised or reduced CoQ10, your body, if it's capable of of, uh, upregulating quinone reductase adequately, will just keep on recycling that. You said the magic words, if your body's capable. So therefore, should we not be concentrating on these enzymes? You mentioned them before, you know, glutathione and and oxidised glutathione, and, and then you've got the enzymes, glutathione peroxidase and... Well, glutathione itself, I mean, it does have direct antioxidant capability, but it's largely a cofactor. It's a cofactor for glutathione peroxidase, which is part of that primary superoxide-reducing pathway. It's a cofactor for glutathione S-transferase, which is one of the phase two detox enzymes. So it's really part of the support cast. Unfortunately, I read all sorts of things online about... Glutathione is the master antioxidant. 
that means nothing in cellular biochemistry. The cell is this extraordinary orchestra, and it's just like saying the violins are the most important instrument in the symphony orchestra. You can't say that, and you can't say glutathione is the master antioxidant for exactly the same reason. Yeah, that's right. Uh, indeed, I think that's this is where the, the research falls down because they try and use one or a very few antioxidants for the to mimic the complexity of the human body. And and this is where I love foods as, you know, the it should always be the base prescription. We should be mm-hmm. concentrating on this. this. Is why I love what mm-hmm. you're doing. Well, and, and that's exactly right. And I can't give you the quotation on this at the moment, but I do sometimes talk about a study where lycopene uh, as the extracted molecule from tomatoes was used in a clinical trial compared with a whole tomato and um, you know, tomato paste or puree, yep. the results for the food were very much more impressive than they were for the lycopene, and yet there was very much more lycopene being administered than the small amount that occurs in the food. So we, we tend to get these hero molecules that we hang on to, but in fact, they're not terribly effective when they're taken out of their normal um, contextual nutrient Matrix. Yeah, it's pretty hard to get the equivalent of a Mediterranean-style diet from a, a bland capsule. Christine, can I ask you, with regards to measurement of oxidative stress, is there premise for this? Is there a way to do it? Or do we wait till there's a discernible disease? It's really difficult, Andrew. And um, I've expo- I explored that for quite a number of years. And I came to the conclusion that most of the measurements that we tend to use are inadequate. Mm. For example, uh, if we're talking about glutathione, um, there are tests which measure oxidised to reduce glutathione. They're not terribly useful. And one of the reasons for this is when a body is under stress, it tends to upregulate its defences initially. So um, there's some studies that have been done um, in Australia and looking at type 2 diabetic patients, and you would think when when you have a type 2 diabetic, you would think their oxidised glutathione would be greater than their reduced. And in fact, it's the other way around. And for quite a long time, this individual after diagnosis is mounting his own defence. And on average, it's about 16 years before you see the decline. So what that's telling us is we don't know. If you see um, a type 2 diabetic patient and he's got a glutathione level oxidised to reduced value, mm. you don't know whether he's on the way up or whether he's on oh, the yeah. way down. It's a snapshot. And it's completely useless. So I've come to the conclusion that the only... Um, measurement that I would even consider is the 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine. So that's damage to the DNA. And the, and I know it's kind of, you know, closing the gate after the horse is bolted because it's really the final step of the line. If you look at the tally of all of the oxidative in, um, injuries within a cell, they culminate ultimately in DNA damage. So to me... That is the only way I can get some overall impression of what's going on in an individual rather than trying to highlight some little factor that's happening along the way that I've really got very little knowledge of. Yeah, I I remember reading a little bit about um, the isoprostanes and I was thinking Uh about, well, that's really only relevant for fat metabolism. It's a part of the arachidonic acid cascade, is that right? Yes, it is. It is. And, and it's it's widely used in the lab, and really we use it for tracking change, which is a little bit different from what you're doing in a clinical environment when you've got a new patient and you're trying to draw a conclusion. How much oxidative burden is this particular individual subjected to? Right. But if you're in a lab and you're measuring things, you know, every so often, and you you want to know whether something's tracking up or tracking down, it can be useful. Um, but that's when you're in an isolated lab bench environment, which is, as you mentioned before, yep. totally different from a free-living individual doing all of the myriad of things which we do on a day-to-day basis. And when you're measuring DNA damage in the clinical environment, I would imagine that you'd have to run not one test but a baseline and then a treatment level. Would that be right? Definitely. Right. So, again, you've got to track what's happening. 
Um, and that's where the enzyme quinone reductase is so critical because it is the final enzyme in the phase two detox pathway that stops the DNA um, being mutated or prevents the formation of DNA adducts which are mutagenic. What are, What's the relevance in your opinion of gene SNP measurement? I mean, we all have them. They don't change. You've got them at birth. We're sometimes lulled into thinking that that's the be-all and end-all, the diagnosis rather than risk. What's your take on this? Well, I see it like you do. I see it as a risk picture. So it gives me just a snapshot of, you know, am I likely to see a good response in this patient in this area or am I not? One of the things which concerns me greatly is the way in which the NTHFR gene has been seen by being seen by a lot of people now as if it's a diagnosis and virtually a death sentence. Yeah. The reality is we have been able to treat MTHFR SNPs for decades without ever knowing that they even existed, largely by giving a diet which is rich in plant foods and in particular the B vitamins and of course B twelve. Um, we've done that for years and never even knew it. But the, the, the real risk to me with such a SNP is in individuals thinking, I've just found out I've got this NTHFR SNP, and they use it now to attribute every condition they've ever had is now dependent on that SNP. Yeah. Then they go off online and buy ridiculous doses of a whole range of different supplements, mm -hmm. which in many cases can make them worse. And one of the things that excessive 5-methylfolate does, and I mean really excessive, is to increase the oxidative burden of the cell. Now, no one's writing about this, but if you track the pathways through, you'll find that's exactly what happens. And those people who react badly have given themselves a great oxidative hit in yes. the process. Let's just wrap up that free radical snippet, mm. if you like, um, should we really be changing our thought, our vernacular to instead say signaling molecules? Absolutely. Right. Yes. So, you know, we used to think free radicals were the bad guys. They're, yeah, they're actually important because they're the signal to tell, and they're a, they're a stressor, and they're the signal that says to the cell, if you keep this up, you're going to get into trouble. You better get into that DNA and switch on those defensive molecules now so we can stop anything happening. That's what they're there for. And the risk is you can mask those signals very easily if you take excessive levels of exogenous antioxidants. So that's the trap. Right. So my way, my thought process, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, please, was that we need some of these stressors. It's almost like exercise is a stressor, but it's good it's unless exactly you do too like much. And it's exactly like exercise. It's exactly like it. Yeah. And yes. similarly with mitochondria, let's say in a tumor cell, you need to stress that mitochondria to wake up the normal machinery to go, oh, heck, I've, I've turned from being a normal cell into a, a nondescript mm -hmm. cell and I need to apoptose. So you need that sort of, um, again, the signal. And so the way nature is operating, nature is constantly responding to these signals and signals on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Right. And I think that's why, uh, you know, the thing about science is the more you know, the more you realise you don't <laughs> yes. know. And I have this enormous respect now for the signalling processes that are going on within the cell and not just the signalling, the way Mother Nature switches on, switches off, foot on brake, foot on accelerator continuously all of the time. And I think sometimes we need to just give her the toolbox she needs and step back and let her do her thing and not try to meddle too much in pathways. Right. Now, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have agreed with you twenty years ago because, you know, we didn't know what we know now, but lots of things have changed mm. in understanding the the function of NRF two for a start in controlling in many ways those cellular defences. You can switch on NRF2, you switch on a whole host of protective molecules all at the same time, right. which makes sense. Okay, so, I mean, normally we, we would always favour a diet and we would always use that as a foundation. Hmm. In some instances, that, like for instance, there's a very interesting trial going on at the moment with ice addicts. Um, and they're giving NAC, N-acetylcysteine. Now, mm -hmm. normally we would say a good foundation starts with the diet and you move from there. In some times, this isn't possible. Now, 
the the NICE trial is only just started. The results aren't out yet. But I wonder if we should stop thinking of NAC as quote unquote an antioxidant and use it for some other molecular process that it that it fulfills. Look, I think so. I mean, if, if you keep in mind that NAC has been approved um, in paracetamol toxicity yeah. and in as yeah. a mucolytic yep. in cystic fibrosis, fibrosis yeah. and so on. Yeah. To me, that's a pharmaconutrient. We make our own NAC in the body, without a doubt, but we make it in very small amounts. Yeah. So um, we are using this molecule as a pharmaconutrient. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the ICE uh, addict trial that you're discussing. Um, but, I mean, these are cases where the biochemistry of these individuals is already severely perturbed. And um, eating three square meals a day isn't going to change that, I wouldn't think. So you really have to intervene at a different level. Right. But for most other things, I, I, I understand there's been some negative trials with NAC as well? Yeah, there have. And, and really, in the lab, we use NAC in the lab all the time because it stops an NRS2 activation. So that weak pro-oxidant signal that you use to activate NRS2, you switch it off by giving a dose of NAC. So it's a potent antioxidant in that right, but it's blocking signalling. And that's what I don't like about its broad use. Right. And also the fact that being mucolytic in the respiratory system may also mean that it's mucolytic in the gut. And I don't think there's been enough research uh -huh. done on that yet for us uh -huh. to really know whether that's perturbing other things. How very interesting. And then we get to the microbiome. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, the innate cell defense of having a nice mucin layer lining the entire, you know, gut lumen. Oh, that's interesting. That's why I call it a pharmaconeutrient because right. it's like a pharmaceutical, that there are the good effects and the not-so-good effects. Right. And I think we need to explore them. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to the nutrigenomics compounds that you use, and you favour oh. sulforaphane. And again, mm -hmm. you know, companies will try and and put their mark on it. Ours is best, theirs is best. That's just marketing. But what's the science of sulforaphane? Where did it start? It started in 1992. There was a group at Johns Hopkins University that was led by Professor Paul Talalay there. Uh, and they were using it really looking at, at um, cancer protective molecules that can prevent the cancer process. So that's where they started. And they found that the sulforaphane is very much more concentrated in the broccoli sprout than it is in the broccoli vegetable. Everyone's known for years yep. that cruciferous vegetables are beneficial for health and they're protective against cancer. But um, the Talalay group were attempting to find out what that was. So the reason that the sulforaphane yield is much greater in the sprout is that the precursor compound, glucoraphanin, is in the seed and you don't produce any more of that as the plant grows. So therefore, you're basically just diluting it. And by the time you get from this tiny little brown seed up to a full-headed broccoli, you've really diluted that activity. But there's actually no sulforaphane in any cruciferous vegetable. There's a precursor glucoraphanin and there's an enzyme morosinase and when and they're separately compartmentalised within the plant cell. When you chop or break or chew that, the morosinase enzyme attacks the glucoraphanin and that's what produces the sulforaphane. So in the production of such supplements, you have to be very careful that you're retaining both the glucoraphanin and the morosinase enzyme. And a lot of the US supplements in particular just retain the glucoraphanin as an extract and they don't retain the morosinase. Yep. Uh, they yield very little sulforaphane because they're then reliant on what's going on with certain species of the gut microbiota, which have some morosinase-like activity. But it's only about 10% of what you would have if it was retained in the plant. So the real advantage of sulforaphane is not only is it the most potent inducer of NRF2 or activator, but it's also highly bioavailable. It's a very tiny, low-molecular weight lipophilic molecule that just glides straight in through the cell membranes and uh, it's about 80% bioavailable, whereas the big bulky polyphenols are about 1% bioavailable just simply because of their chemical structure. Yeah. 
Um, this is a very similar story to garlic. Yes, because garlic relies on the enzyme, exactly. Yeah. Exactly the same concept. I, mm-hmm. I, w- I would imagine that there's a whole host of foods that we have to be careful of when we're certainly supplementing, but also looking at packaging them, that we have to be mindful of their freshness. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Hmm. So, Christine, you mentioned the polyphenols were poorly bioavailable, but but that doesn't mean they haven't got health effects. Tell us what's happening here. So, the polyphenols, they are big, bulky structures. So, we used to think that, that they were getting absorbed into the cells and they were having an antioxidant effect within the cells. More recent research has shown that they don't get absorbed more than about 1%, but clearly they have therapeutic effects. So, hmm. what's happening? First of all, they reduce the oxidative burden within the cell. So I mentioned the blackened barbecued steak earlier. So they will quench those radical species in the gut so you get that direct effect. Secondly, they are now considered to be a prebiotic food for the microflora in the gut. And they tend to um, focus on producing additional amounts of some of the lesser-known species like Acomancia, Mucinifila and so on. So they have a direct prebiotic effect. And in the process, the microbiota break these big bulky molecules down into smaller metabolites, which clearly are being absorbed. And we're thinking now that some of the beneficial effects that come from these polyphenols are not from the original molecule itself. It's from the variety of metabolites that are being uh, produced in the gut. The problem with this is we each have um, a unique microbial signature mm. in the gut. And so the metabolites that you produce won't be the same ones that I produce. And so this really makes the clinical studies very difficult now because you don't have the level playing field. No, that's so right. it's, it's a whole pretty exciting area of research now that's um, very, very active. And I think in time we'll probably get some more answers to this. Um, but interesting, yes. I remember a few years ago that, you know, they thought they had the, I think it was the basic three, do I say the word phenotypes, of healthy gut microbiotas or microbiomes. And then I think it was not not six months later, they went, no, nah, no, we got it wrong. There's no way. We have this shotgun effect. Do you think we'll ever get to the stage where we'll have not one healthy prebiotic, but a mix of prebiotic foods that we know can favour healthy gut microbiota. You've mentioned Acomantia mucinophilia. There's, you know, Fecalibacterium prausnitzii. There's the Valenella species. We go on and on. But do you think we'll get to that stage where we'll say this is the sorts of foods that we need to incorporate to help our gut? Well, in fact, we teach that in the gym protocol already. Ah. So we have a whole list of prebiotic-containing foods, to the best of our knowledge at this time, and we talk about diets of inclusion, not diets of exclusion. I'm only interested in in excluding um, foods for which there is a known adverse reaction for that patient. Otherwise, I want to improve the diversity and variety of foods in the diet as quickly as possible. So in the short term, you may use your particular prebiotic supplement, and I recommend that anyway. But as time goes by, you need to be phasing that out and, and having this whole array of different types of foods. Um, you know, things like the um, galacto-oligosaccharides, they're in legumes. And, um, you know, the inulin family, it's in onions and leeks and so on. So we can go through a whole host of different prebiotic substances which are available in supplement form and find the foods that they come from. So I like to encourage um, those foods to be introduced into the diet as soon as the patient's intolerances have been removed. And part of what we do is to try to restore the gut epithelial homeostasis and its underlying immune network so that we can build out those food intolerances. Gotcha. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate that we've got now people online in particular promoting the avoidance of vegetables because we shouldn't be getting lectins. I mean, you, you practically cut out all of the plant foods in the diet by doing this. So we've got histamine intolerance, lectin intolerance, salicylate intolerance. It's just getting ridiculous. And I've spoken to people who were down to five and six 
foods only that they can tolerate in a day and they are very hard to reverse because the nutrients they need to recover are in the foods that they're not eating. Yes. Mike Ash calls them the mashed potato and peas brigade. They they just go down this ever-increasing spiral of excluding food after food until they're on this extremely basic diet, nutritionally deficit, and they're extremely wasted and emaciated and have uh-huh. no resilience and everything. That must be a real trick to to reinvigorate that. And there's a real clinical responsibility there to do it properly. So how do you get these patients back? Well, one of the things we focus on is the the um, intestinal epithelial cell as a key player right. because if you enhance the function of that cell, and NRF2 is part of that story, once you get those cells working as they should, they are modulating this whole underlying immune network. So we're up-regulating infection control, we're down-regulating inflammation, we're down-regulating the allergenic response, and we're down-regulating autoimmunity. The gut immune interface is entirely capable of modulating all that if you get those cells functioning as they should do. Right. And, of course, that's got to involve measurement. So what sort of things do you look at to measure? Like interleukin-1b, IL-6, TNF-alpha, what do you measure there? Well, those are the, the key inflammatory cytokines, but in the short term, I'm not particularly interested in measuring anything. Right. Um, and that might sound a little peculiar, but the patients who come on this journey really have been tested and measured to death. They've done everything. They've tried every diet. They've done every test. I'm just interested in restoring homeostasis, and the symptomatology will tell you that pretty quickly, and you will see how recovery is occurring. And what I find then is because of the cardiometabolic um, connections to what's going on in the gut and chronic disease in general, if a patient comes to you with half a dozen symptoms that are really bothering them, after you restore gut immune homeostasis, they might have cleared four of those symptoms yeah. and there are two left. Yeah. To me, that's now time to get in and start finding out Whatever didn't clear up, why didn't it clear up? Where is the problem? How do we test it? What have we got available to us? So I don't do a whole lot of tests at the the outset because I think we can restore that function without testing anything. We've got all sorts of issues with how reliable is zonulin antibody testing. Yes. And, I mean, a lot of these tests are not quite what you'd like. Lipopolysaccharides would be a useful monitor. But to be honest, I find a lot of people have burnt a lot of dollars in trying to sort these things out along the way. And if you can encourage them to go on six or eight weeks or something of a program without having to spend any more money on tests, they pretty much buy into that. What, what about the, uh, the integrative laboratory testing of uh, detox capability of drugs? Like, for instance, they use aspirin, a paracetamol and caffeine. Is this uh-huh. does this give you any idea about the patient's capability to handle, you know, insults if you like? Uh, look, it would give you some indication of the capability at the point you tested it, but I think then you're probably better to go back to the nutrigenetic profile and have a look at genetically what they'd started with. I think that's a better way of seeing what the capacity for recovery is going to be. Okay, so let's talk about this nutrigenetic report. What's involved with this? Well, a patient takes a DNA swab, it gets sent off to the lab, and depending on the particular um, company that's providing the report, they'll then categorise a number of genes in different ways. So we're not testing the whole microbi- uh, the whole genome. We wouldn't know what to do with it if mm. we had information books books. on 25,000 genes. Mm. It's a bit fanciful. But, you know, in the vicinity of 50, 75, 100, most of those genes have been validated to the extent that we know that we can attach some meaning to the report when it comes out. But I particularly like the reports that categorise the genes into functional groups. So I'm particularly interested in looking at core upstream factors that govern cellular defences. So I want to look at genes that govern redox balance, um, inflammation, detoxification processes, cellular energetics, 
and methylation. And, and they're my core groups that I like to look at, and that will tell me that individual's capacity to a large extent to respond to an intervention. Okay, so what happens next, though? You, what do you teach clinicians to master when they're incorporating the GEM protocol? So if we, we, we call the intestinal epithelial cell mission control of the gut ecosystem. So I want to focus on that cell in the short term. So if I look at those cellular processes, so we know the intestinal epithelial cell, just like any other cell in the body, will respond um, to NRF2 activation. It will respond to NF-kappa-B down regulation. So that's going to enhance uh, redox control. It's going to reduce um, unregulated inflammation going to enhance detoxification processes, Uh, it'll increase glutathione synthesis. So all of those core factors that any cell needs to work normally will be uh, enhanced by activating NRF2. And I use a high-yielding sulforaphane supplement of about 20 milligrams a day to do that. So that's the beginning. The uh, immune interface or the gut immune interface which lies just below the intestinal epithelial cell, we largely target by enhancing the toll-like receptor 2 activity. So on those epithelial cells, a whole lot lot of toll-like receptors. The toll-like receptor 4 is one that picks up the endotoxin, so we don't want to focus on that. And we use um, a diet low in saturated fat, particularly low saturated animal fat, to downregulate toll-like receptor 4. But we use um, a, a prebiotic, which is actually called an immunobiotic, which is a dead uh, lactobacillus plantarum, cell which has been optimised for its cell wall content of lipotechoic acid. So lipotechoic acid or LTA attaches to toll-like receptor 2 and that sets off a whole host of immune modulating processes which tend to enhance infection control and downregulate inflammation and downregulate allergenicity. The other thing that activation of toll-like receptor 2 does is that it improves the tight junctions. And um, we spend a lot of time in the training talking about the gut barrier integrity and the importance of uh, the, the tight junction control. And it's a big story that has got much more than gluten that's associated with it. And I yeah. think it's unfortunate that there's this focus on gluten as the fall guy here, when in fact one of the most significant factors that um, down-regulates those tight junctions is a high HbA1c level. So in any pre-diabetic or diabetic patient, you can expect there's going to be problems at the gut barrier and vice versa. And we spend a lot of time talking about this feed-forward loop where uh, a perturbed gut barrier is feeding cardiometabolic disease and then the cardiometabolic disease, which is likely to have an elevated HbA1c, goes back now and perturbs those tight junctions. So you can't treat one without treating the other. Right. You're getting onto an area that I was just going to ask you about, and that is, do you think we're at the stage now, and I think you've just answered this, but with regards to specific groups of polyphenols and specific bacteria or bacterial cell walls being used as a therapy to help each other to to bring about um, you know rejuvenation of the of the gut lining. Yes, and I think what what this new area of immunobiotics has done is it's taught us some of the properties of, of probiotics. I mean, I I think for a long time most of us, I certainly did thought that a lot of the benefit of getting a probiotic supplement was the competitive exclusion. Basically, you'd push the the bad guys out of the way. Um, But there's a completely different story now associated with what probiotic supplements can do. And this whole idea of the LTA marker or bioactive biomolecule that's on the wall of the gram-positive bacteria just puts this in a totally new light. And um, and even to, to look at the way that when you activate toll-like receptor 2, 
you really upregulate infection control within the cell. So it puts a totally different slant now on how we deal with infectious disease. Yeah. And um, I wasn't aware of that until the last couple of years. Okay, so does this answer the question about... Um basically the, a healthy, having a healthy fence, that, you know, we like probiotics because we think they've got a smile on their face. But mm-hmm. indeed, that's not the case. They talk to our body, they talk mm-hmm. to our immune cells and say, listen, I'll stay outside here, won't cause you harm. And the body says, well, I'll help you as long as you stay on that side of the fence. So I'll make this nice gushy layer of mucin, um, two layers in the colon. And you can embed there, you can have a home, I'll help you, you help me, but you stay on that side of the fence. So is this really just uh, an immune reaction, albeit a less confronting one? Well, that's right. But just about a year ago, September last year, there was a paper published which shows that it's actually the function of the colonocyte that is driving the population of the microbiota. And Say that again. It's, it's the colonocyte yep. that's determining who lives and who doesn't live in terms of the microbiota within the gut. The control is coming from the colonocyte. And I thought wow. that was brilliant when I saw that because that is exactly reaffirming what I've been working with with the GEM protocol over the last couple of years. And so, we get, yes, it's a symbiotic relationship without a doubt. But I think the other thing that really led me to develop the GEM protocol was a few unanswered questions. And Mm. one of them was that when you look at the microbiome or you look at a microbiome analysis and you see all these ups and downs of maybe 50 different species, and I've got a probiotic supplement in front of me that's got half a dozen different (laughs) organisms, how do I know that they're the ones that my gut wants? And, of course, the answer to that is I don't. Mm. Um, And the other issue is that probiotics don't typically colonise in an adult. So there's the other issue. I think we thought you would put them back after, you know, assault from antibiotics, but you don't actually put them back. And that's where we come back to this idea of restoring the gut ecosystem and using prebiotic foods to feed whichever organisms need to be fed, and let Mother Nature do the fine-tuning on that. I don't think we have the ability to manipulate the species in the microbiome as we think we might. Right. At least maybe not for long-term health. I mean, there's certain evidence to show benefit of, you know, antibiotic-associated diarrhoea and things like that using lactobacillus GG. Most definitely, yes. But, But that's symptomatic and some of the best research on probiotics is for enormous benefit in conditions and inflammatory skin conditions and respiratory conditions and a whole host of different conditions. There is no doubt that they are extremely beneficial in that regard, but it doesn't fix things in the long term. No. It's not a long term solution. So that's the difference. And that was again a question that I asked myself, what am I trying to achieve here? I've always had this question about um, probiotics, particularly when they say they're isolated from a human. And I, I thought, what did that human die from? <laughs> uh, you know, are you perhaps increasing a risk later on? <laughs> so we just don't know this long-term stuff. And the other thing that make, that amuses me too is we put up the Hadza tribe in Tanzania as some sort of a benchmark for the perfect microbiome. But if you do a little bit of research on the Hadza tribe, I don't think you or I or anyone listening to this program wants to eat exactly (laughs) what they eat because, fur aside, it is the whole animal. And, uh, like, it it is such... You've obviously read the blog of Jeff Leach where, you know, they fricassee the colon. They they push out the plant food of the the antelope and they fricassee the colon and pass it round. You know, hardly what we'd describe as sashimi. Uh, I've got a few extinct species. I think they can stay like that. (laughs) That's what I have to do to get them back. So where's the future? What's your research? Where's it leading? My research in many ways has done the full circle in however many years it is since 1975 when I started practice because I started out with food and I'm really coming right around the full circle again to look at foods and food molecules that have been validated scientifically. And I'm again, I said this earlier, I said I think we need to give Mother Nature her toolbox and then stand back 
and let her do what she needs to do. And I say that because of the intricacies of these modulatory mechanisms which occur within cells. I mean, we we look at a metabolic pathway and we can draw it out in a piece of paper and we think that's lovely and we try to manipulate that in some way. But what we don't take into account is that on a moment-to-moment basis, there are modulators in there. There's little foot tipping on the brake continuously in the cell um, in response to signals up, signals down. We can't possibly ever replicate that. Right. I'm going to go right back to enzymes again. And I know this isn't the biochemical enzymes that, we talk, that we've discussed, mm-hmm. but digestive enzymes. What do you think the, the relevance is for supplying somebody who is stressed, not eating well, sympathetic nervous act- activation? What do you think the relevance is about supplying them a good, healthy diet some nutraceutical, phytochemically active biofoods, plus maybe some digestive enzymes to help them absorb those substrates so that they can be used. Is that worthy or should we just concentrate on eating? No, I think you're right because when there is chronic inflammation at the gut wall, that inflammation will impact the intestinal villi and you'll also impact the ability of those intestinal cells to produce enzymes and pancreatic as well. Um, And therefore, yes, in the short term, there is often merit in using a digestive enzyme, um, hopefully not for the long term. As you get control of that gut ecosystem and that inflammatory state that's in there, um, you ought to see recovery of those enzymes. So I never see them as a long-term solution. Right. So you teach people how to eat well, chewing like grandma did? (laughs) Something like that, (laughs) With regards to the GEM protocol, when you're talking about a patient who has lost their resilience and you've now rejuvenated them back to when their symptoms are under control, uh-huh. let's talk about this healthy eating. Like, Do you get people off the phytochemical supplements and get them to then concentrate on you know, choosing their foods? And, and where does this fit with people who have traditionally avoided vegetables, which, I mean, you and I would love. I sit down to a plate of Brussels sprouts and I just go, yum. (laughs) That's not Mm -hmm. what most blokes would do. And many women too. (laughs) Um, Look, look, it's difficult. In an ideal world, yes, and um, we'd be looking at six to 800 grams of of non-starchy plant foods a day. There's a couple of good studies that show why that amount. But um, in a real world, that isn't always going to happen. We know that. Um, and so for that reason, I guess we just do the best we can to persuade the patient that um, the more food you eat, the, the better they're going to be. Unfortunately, I've been in a situation in clinic where they listen to your beautiful little presentation. They go, just give me the pill. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that happening, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, I look, it's on a patient-to-patient basis. So I'm not naive enough to think that we can get everybody doing that. But it doesn't stop me telling them the value of doing that. And I hate to think that I'm going to prejudge a patient's ability to take up whatever information I give them. Mm. I, I, I like to be told the, the total story and then I can decide what I pick and choose from that. And I think a lot of other people do that too. Yeah. Um, I remember some years ago looking at diabetic education and they let you have an aunt's biscuit and they let you have this and that because patients won't stick to it. I mean, how patronising is that, really? Yeah. We've been favouring, you know, what is ostensibly the, the Mediterranean diet, a plant-based diet, and, and that's what we've been discussing. How uh-huh. do you use the GEM protocol or indeed phytochemicals when people are, um, you know, on, say, the ketogenic diet? <laughs> You're asking all the controversial questions, <laughs> aren't you? I think one of the biggest issues for the ketogenic diet is defining it. So my understanding of the ketogenic diet as it originated back with Atkins was that you had a keto stick and you measured the degree of purple on the stick to give you an indication of what sort of level of ketones you were producing. As I understand it now, people don't do that test. And what they're calling a ketogenic diet... I don't think, would have them remaining in ketosis. I think it's a low-carbohydrate diet, which is not necessarily ketogenic. 
Um, and the more I speak to people about this, the more convinced I am that most people are not really in ketosis. So that's another story, and I'm very much in favour of avoiding excessive carbohydrates if you're not um, doing enough exercise to burn them, and certainly we get rid of all processed, refined carbohydrates. And I think if we're having a, a low-carbohydrate um strictly ketogenic diet, we are starving the microbiome and I think there's plenty of evidence to show that um, because what the bugs will do is if you don't feed them the right fibres, they chew into the mucin layer because those mucopolysaccharides at the gut are beautiful prebiotic foods for the little microbiota that live there and they'll chomp into them which I think in many cases is the, the beginning of the loss of innate immunity. You're eroding away that mucin layer and promoting inflammation, and downhill we go very quickly. I think you and I are both favouring the uh, Mediterranean-style <laughs> diet. Certainly I am because not only is it not just the food... Good. Not well, it tastes good. Not just that, but the social interaction, and also it allows alcohol. But so. <laughs> well, I did want to say something. Um, so um, interesting, Andrew, that you talk about the Mediterranean diet. I'm very much in favour of that style of eating as well, although I never use that label. <laughs> However, when you look at foods that do similar things to gluten, to the tight junctions, you find that gluten tends to open the tight junctions. Uh, within the, the gut barrier, so does alcohol, and so does hops. Yes. However, the polyphenols that are in red wine close. actually tend to close the tight junctions. So perhaps the alcohol that is opening them and the polyphenols that are closing them have this uh, cancelling out effect, and so everything's fine. I, I wonder if we'll get to a stage with regards to zonulin occludens and, and the zonulin, zonulin complex that... You know, it's not just an open or shut situation, that it, it cycles open and closed depending on what the body needs to accomplish. It's a dynamic structure mm. that is continuously opening and closing. I hear people say, you've got to seal up that leaky gut, and I cringe when I hear that. I never use the term leaky gut because it isn't that. It's a dynamic structure that becomes unresponsive. Christine, that's a, a subject for another day, I think. Thank you so much for taking us through your scientific work, but also the, um, the production of the GEM protocol and how, to helping, how you can help clinicians to help their patients with regards to their, not just their gut problems, but their whole immune issues uh, using phytoactive phytochemicals. So thank you so much for taking us through just a snippet of it today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.